0: It's nice to be here. I have, you know, I had ankle surgery, and I had COVID, and then it's been a lot. And so it's actually nice to to be here and be back up in, in front and be able to, to teach again today. And um, I'm excited. Um, you know, uh, when I was when I was growing up, I grew up in a, a town that had about 25,000 people. It's now quadrupled in size. It's like huge. It's like a metropolis now. But when I was younger, it was a, it was a smallish town. And um, my friends and I would go on Friday nights to the basketball games, the high school basketball games. And high school basketball games were a big deal in my town in Broomfield, Colorado. And I always like, sat there and watched and kind of like, idolized the varsity basketball players. And, um, and eventually I grew up and be, I got to become one of those varsity basketball players. And so um, because it was a smallish town, Friday nights were huge in our gym. Like the gym was packed, the student section stood the whole time. There was a little section where the junior hires sat. There was a place in the front wall where, where the mayor was and the councilman and the parks and recs director. Um, and in this particular night, it was the end of my senior year. It was the last game of the regular season. We're playing Jefferson High School. We hadn't lost a home game all year. And if we win, we clinch the Skyline League title, we probably get a spot in state for sure. And so it's like a big night. And I remember it so clearly. Because with 20 seconds left in the game, we're losing. We hadn't lost a game, a home game, and we're losing. It's 54 to 51, and there's 20 seconds left. And we've, we've drawn up a play, and it's not for me because I'm not really that good, <laughs> like the fourth option. We draw up a play, and as the ball is swung to me, for whatever reason, I'm standing at the three-point line. I'm right in front of our bench, and I don't do what I'm supposed to do, I, I, I take the shot. And I shoot the ball, like 17, 16 seconds left, and it goes in. And the place goes berserk. I mean, I remember watching film the next day. The camera was shaking. Like <laughs> it was, it was a moment for me that I experienced for the first time what what the world's understanding of what glory must be in that moment. I was feeling that. I was feeling like like people were they weren't chanting my name, because, but my, the student section knew my favorite basketball player was Reggie Miller, so they start chanting Reggie, Reggie, like it, <laughs> I mean, I'm just like taking all this in, and it's so bad for my ego, right? Because a 17-year-old kid, right? I'm taking it all in, but I remember that moment so clearly, and I remember that feeling. That's what, that, that's, what, that's what glory must feel like, right? Or rather, that's, that's what we've been conditioned to believe, that glory is and what glory feels like. Everyone loves you, everyone wants to be you, at its core you've done something, or you possess something that attracts the praise or the adoration of the people around you isn't that how we see glory in fact even even the story i told is me being nostalgic and talking about or we might say reliving my what Reliving my glory days right and just so you know on the next possession i committed a foul and they shot free throws and we lost so (laughs) my glory was (laughs) short-lived but there's actually a reason that i bring this up and it's not to relive my glory days when I was 17 years old. Now, there's a connection here to our series that we're embedded in called The Untamed Jesus. Where we're exploring the words of Jesus as presented to us in the Gospel of John. And in a day and age where we as Christians sometimes attempt to mold Jesus into our own image, it's probably a solid practice to stop and wrestle with the unfiltered, sometimes controversial and often transformative words of Jesus that help us to understand who he actually is even if it's a little bit uncomfortable. So in the passage we're gonna unpack, there's a a bit of a theme that runs through it, and as you might have guessed, that theme is, anybody? Glory. Thank you. (laughs) But I'm I'm gonna attempt to do things a little bit differently today, and I hope that's okay with you. Instead of just jumping right into the text, I was hoping we could explore this theme, this glory, this word, Um, not only as John uses it in his writing, but also how the biblical writers use this word and understood it It this word shows up hundreds of times throughout the bible by the way and my hope is that in doing so we can have a better understanding of what's happening in our passage and what uncomfortable yet absolutely vital message john is trying to convey to us through the words of jesus so be patient with me it's going to be a bit of a journey this morning but i'm hoping that the payoff will be worth it So this word glory is extremely nuanced and sort of diverse in its usage throughout the Bible. And in addition to the sort of ways that we think about glory as a seen or unseen entity in the Old Testament, um, the Hebrew word that's used for glory the most is the root word kavod. Kavod. And of course the word glory is in the New Testament too, and it's, it's written as the Greek word doxa which carries a similar definition. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, that word um, doxa is the word that's used to translate COVID whenever it, a- or not COVID, Gosh, it's on the brain. Woo, <laughs> kavod, whenever it appears. Man, it was a late night for me last night. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to talk about this word. And I want you to know that I'm not, I am not super smart. The next like five to ten minutes is all from Tim Mackey, who is the creator of the Bible Project. Like, I just took everything that he was teaching me and now I'm teaching it to you, and so please, I want to give credit where credit is due. Um, but kavod is literally translated as heaviness or weighty. In fact, in, in the book of 1 Samuel, there's a story where the priest, Eli, finds out, and he's like old, he's like ninety years old at this point, he finds out that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken by the Philistines. And when he finds out this information, he's so taken back by it that he literally falls off his chair and he breaks his neck and he dies. And in the text it says he falls um he falls back because he was a man of Kavod. Like he was fat. He was heavy. And because the force when he fell down, he broke his neck. So literally heaviness. Also, figuratively, it's the word heavy. When we think of like, you um, know, I was thinking this morning as we were worshiping and Vanessa came up to pray, there's like heaviness in that, right? Like you, we sometimes say that there's gravity to a situation, right, the weight, of, the weight of what's going on. That's also kavod. And secondly, metaphorically, it's translated as importance or honor or someone's reputation. Um, in Psalm 7.5, David is being chased by Absalom, and he's out in the the desert, and he's running for his life. And he says this, The enemy pursues my soul and overtakes it. He tramples my life to the ground and lays my glory, or my kavod, in the dust. The magnitude of someone's importance, their significance, the heaviness of their role in society, it can be felt. Have you ever been starstruck before? Like, have you ever um, found yourself in proximity with someone who's, like, famous or really important in the world? Like there's that feeling that comes over you, right, that heaviness. I was, I was working at a Barnes and Noble in the City of Orange when I was in college, and I was working in the cafe, um, this little Starbucks cafe, and I opened one Friday morning, and I'm getting everything ready, and the manager goes and opens the doors for customers to come in, and the first people that walk in are Kobe and Vanessa Bryant. And I'm like, my heart falls to my stomach, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, what do I do? And like I felt it. And they go up the escalator away from me, because I'm downstairs and I'm like, oh thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) But as they come down the escalator, Vanessa goes over there and Kobe walks right towards me. And he's like, he's ordering a drink for his wife, and I'm like shaking and trying to like (laughs) trying to have a regular conversation. And it was actually a really good conversation. But like I could feel that presence, that weighty presence. It was his But also, there's a third kind of definition, and it's the physical manifestation of one's importance. Like in the Old Testament, kings are often deemed significant and important in direct correlation to their abundance of wealth. Whether it be gold, or silver, or precious gems, or grains, or cattle, or sheep, or whatever it is. It's their wealth. It's the visible representation of their glory or kavod. So I go through all this to say this. It's really easy to see that even in reading the Bible, how we get the idea of glory being, yes, honor and reverence and importance, but much of these definitions are all about the ways that humans honor each other or the ways that humans have come up with ways to give glory to God. In fact, one of our traditions in in our faith tradition to glorify God is through singing, right? We glorify and praise God through the singing of songs, which is really good. Like, this morning, isn't it such a blessing when our worship team comes up and leads us in a tangible way that we can give honor or cavode to God through music? Like, it's a time we can often feel the weight of God's Spirit in our midst in a really mysterious and beautiful and sort of supernatural feeling of a way. I mean, how many times does the psalmist say, like, sing your praises to the Lord? But there has to be something more to it. There has to be a way of being that accompanies our songs and whatever other ways we've come up with to give glory to God because it seems as though people can sing songs or fill in the blank with whatever act of worship you want but still not actually glorify God I mean look at look at what the prophet Amos writes Amos five twenty-one to 23. The Lord says I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice your peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living." Whoa. (laughs) So even though songs are good, it seems like it's pretty clear that songs sung outside of a heart of justice and some standard of right living are actually not super glorifying to God, which leads to this one last angle of this word glory. And I promise we're almost to John. I hope you're not getting bored. Are you getting bored? I hope you're not getting bored. Are you good? OK. Remember that we said kavod can be the physical manifestation of someone's importance, right? A person's kavod, then, equals like their possessions or their wealth things you can see that they've accumulated. But when this word is used in the Bible, it's mostly used about God's kavod. So what is the physical manifestation of God's importance? Well, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens proclaim the glory, the kavod of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. And he goes on to talk about how the sun is placed in the sky, and it goes from one end of the earth to the other as it travels across during the day. And it's easy to see that the psalmist is referring to creation. If you want to see a person's glory, look at their stuff. Their money, their houses, their boats, their championship rings, their shoes, right? Like, their stuff. If you want to see God's glory, then go outside and open your eyes. Look at that tree. Look at that grass. Look at the birds in the sky, look at the sun as it travels across the sky. It's it's glory. Creation is God's kavod. But it gets even better. Psalm Psalm number 8. When I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set into place. What is humanity? That you are mindful of them. Human beings that you care for them. You have made them just a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. And made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea." And then Genesis chapter 1, page 1 of the Bible. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. So God created mankind in his own image. Think about this. What has the potential to reflect God's character in the world and show off his reputation and add to his honor? It's right there on page one of the Bible. It's humans. We're literally created in his image. We humans have the potential to add to God's kavod in the world, to enhance his reputation, to glorify him, simply by being in the world in the ways that we are created to be, to rule with him, in the ways we are designed and imaged to do from the very beginning. We, according to the biblical writers, at the very least, hold the potential to be God's kavod. But of course, even with all the help that God tries to offer humanity through the prophets and through rules to guide and right living, humanity simply can't quite get there. The temptation to define good and evil for themselves and to live for humanity's own glory, to acquire riches and significance outside of what humans were created to do, is so strong that humans have been unable to reflect the character of God in the world, even though they were created and crafted in God's image. This is the story of the Bible. It's the narrative that leads us to Jesus. And it leads us to John chapter 12. See, I got there, (laughs) got there, finally. So what I'd like for us to do is this. I'd like for us um, to, as I read this, to consider all that we've explored in regards to this word, glory. And let's see if we can pick up what John is putting down and sit in some pretty significant tension as we listen to the words of Jesus. So here we go, John chapter 12. Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem. And if, if you remember, he's given a king's welcome. Like he comes in, they put the palm branches on the ground. He's riding the donkey. They're, singing Hosanna. They're saying Hosanna. They're cheering because a lot of these people believe that this really is the Messiah, the promised Savior King, but it doesn't last very long. Check this out. Jesus speaks to a crowd that's gathered, and this is what he says. John 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So at this point, the crowd probably cheers again. Hosanna, because what do they think his glorification is going to look like? They think he's about to be this victorious king who will inherit all of this wealth and prestige and adoration after he leads a huge military campaign against the Roman occupation and frees his people via a bloody and violent revolution that confronts and kills and eliminates the enemy. That's what they think is going to happen. And those who have come. To think of Jesus as the Messiah man, they are there for it. Ready. But Jesus continues. Verse 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then it came a voice from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 32, this is Jesus again. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And I love this next verse because John does this every once in a while. If you guys have been reading John, you'll notice this. He kind of like stops his story and looks at us, just to make sure we're tracking, right? And he says, he said this to show what kind of death he's going to die, just to make sure we're with him. Like, OK, thanks, John. I wish he would do that in other places where I'm really confused, but he helped us out a little bit. And then the crowd spoke up and said, we have heard from the law, of the, from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So just when Jesus tells the crowd, the time has come for him to be glorified, the next thing he tells them is that he's going to die. Not only that, he tells them he's not going to, he's going to die, not engage in like a heroic battle for their freedom, but that he's going to be lifted up from the earth, which of course means what? He's going to be crucified. When crucifixion was so heinous and so grotesque and so brutal and inhumane that people wouldn't even say the word. Jesus says that the hour of his glory has arrived and that glory would culminate in the exact opposite of what people thought of when they envisioned glory. See, the point of public crucifixion was not only to terrorize people into obedience, but to shame the victim as well. Those who were crucified were stripped naked. So they wouldn't just die an excruciatingly painful death, but so they could also feel shame in their final moments of life. shame and glory, they don't mix, do they? So the people, they can't wrap their minds around this, and they respond as anyone who's been shaped in the imperial systems of our world would respond, and they question him. What are you talking about, Jesus? Who's going to be crucified? Not you, you're the Messiah, aren't you? And in fact, in less than one week's time, many of the same people in the crowd who just cried Hosanna, the king of Israel, would be the same ones who would call for his execution. Okay, let me see if I can piece this all together for us. I know it's been a lot. In our exploration of glory, kavod, we are easily able to see how glory can be associated with wealth and with power and with winning. In fact, I think it's fair to say that, that God's glory is actually unrecognizable To those who cling so tightly to the idea of glory that the world sells us even Jesus' own disciples in his inner circle didn't get it remember in Mark 4 when James and John come to Jesus and they're like hey Jesus we've been talking we want to sit on your right and on your left when you step into your glory because they literally think they're going to sit on these padded seats next to God's throne as like secretary and state and vice president or something like that when Jesus takes over the empire. But when Jesus steps into his glory, who's actually on his left and on his right? When the Son of Man is glorified and lifted up onto his throne, which turns out to be a wooden cross, wearing his crown that happens to be made out of thorns, who's on his right and who's on his left? It's two others, also condemned, also sharing in that same fate. Jesus said in verse 32 that when he was lifted from the earth, he would draw all people to himself. See, Jesus is the image of God. It's what John has been trying so hard to convey throughout his entire gospel. Jesus is the physical embodiment of God's glory, wholly given over to the well-being of those around him. Jesus draws people to himself not by slamming down his fist and demanding our allegiance. Not through promises of worldly riches or wealth. Not through threats of violence. No, he draws the whole world to himself by accepting his role of a king who would sooner die forgiving his enemies than exacting revenge against them. Of that, that is glorious. And that does something to me. There's going, to be a, there's going to be a painting that's going to come up on the screen. This is a painting by Andrea Montaigne, an Italian Renaissance artist. It hangs in the Louvre in Paris. I'm sometimes disappointed that our Protestant tradition of faith doesn't place a lot of value on crucifixes or on art that depicts the crucifixion. Because as I gaze upon the body of the pierced one, something inside of me changes. See, in my faith tradition, I was given what can be called a page three theology. An idea about God that begins with original sin, not original blessing. It kind of skipped over page one. And that whole story where he calls me good and beloved before I became anything else. So I was taught that I was so bad and that God is so angry at me that someone had to die. So in my mind, Jesus's death on the cross didn't glorify God, it simply appeased him. But when I see this, in the light of Jesus's glory revealed as the truest revelation of who God is, I see not appeasement, but the ultimate form of self-giving love. You know, when he, when he began the series, Jay Lee shared from John chapter 3, where, John tells, or where Jesus tells Nicodemus that just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who sees will be saved. It's a reference to the Book of Numbers, part of the Torah, where Moses goes to God and asks for help for the Israelites, because the Israelites are out in the wilderness, and they keep getting bit by these snakes. And the people are dying. And so Moses goes to God and says, God, what should I do? People are Snakes are biting my people. They're dying. What, what can I do? And, and, and God tells Moses, go mold, a, mold one of these serpents out of bronze. And then take the serpent, and the, the bronze mold of the serpent, and hold it up for the people to see. And when the people see it, they'll be saved. So Moses did it. And the people were saved. Jesus is trying to convey to Nicodemus that just as the serpent being lifted on the pole in the wilderness brought about the healing of those bitten by the snakes, when the Son of Man is lifted from the earth, it's going to bring about the healing and the salvation of the world. And we might wonder why. Why would God allow this to be his fate? But it's in the next verse in John 3 that Jay so beautifully covered in the first week of our series. Jesus is lifted from the earth because God so loves the world. The glory, the kavod of the cross, it changes my mind about who God is. Instead of an angry God looking upon the cross, orchestrating the death of his son in order to be able to forgive us, I see God on the cross. In divine solidarity with human suffering enduring all of the ugliness of humanity's sin and selfishness and violence as he forgives us that kind of love that act of love it changes me as i look at the image of jesus being lifted lifted like the serpent in the wilderness and i contemplate its gravity its weight it's cavode, it transforms me you may even say that it rescues me it saves me from myself, from my urges to seek after my own glory. Can we put that painting up again really quick? Thank you. Because you know what else I see in this painting? I see shame. But it's not Jesus who's shamed. Because there can be no shame as Jesus steps into his glory as the true image of God. No, It's not, it's, it's not Jesus who is shamed. It's the powers and the principalities that are shamed as they commit the most heinous sin in the history of the world. The murder of God. I mean, really, what does this do to the kvot of God? See, the powers and the principalities, the state who approved the execution and the religious authority who orchestrated the whole thing, they assumed this would diminish God's honor and reputation. But it ends up doing the exact opposite over two thousand years later we still look upon the pierced one on his cross-shaped throne and we're overwhelmed by the weightiness the honor the kavod the glory of the one who truly is the rescuing king of the world see their plan it backfired so what does this mean for us I think it means that when we live into the people that we were created to be on page one of the Bible, that we lay down that which only leads to our flourishing and well-being in exchange for that which leads to the flourishing and well-being of those around us, especially those who experience oppression, those in the margins, those who the world has labeled as less than, which means it's not all about me. It's not all about my rights, or my tribe winning, or having any sense of superiority at all. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of God's glory and humanity, and for Jesus, it resulted in his death. It will result in a kind of death for us as well. Maybe not a physical death, although it has been the case for numerous martyrs of the faith throughout the history of, of Christianity. But for sure, it means dying to myself die into the things that this broken world may glorify but that don't produce any fruit in the kingdom of god i think that's what that's what jesus is saying in verse 24 and 25 when the seed dies it's buried only then can it produce fruit for a multitude of people to enjoy you see when i think about the earth being filled with god's glory i don't think of shiny clouds or glowing people carrying around treasure boxes filled with gold i'm not saying it won't happen if you're holding on to that maybe But that visual doesn't help me become more like Jesus. When I think of the earth being filled with God's glory, I envision a world filled with people imaging God in their endless generosity, who instead of hoarding resources out of a false sense of scarcity, freely give out of their abundance. And in doing so, experience the joys of sharing that lead to authentic friendships and enthusiastic care for the other. I see people with unlimited capacity for forgiveness, leading to true and lasting reconciliation and repentance that redeems fractured relationships and creates beauty from the broken. And I see nations who once held ideologies of violent hostility towards one another, who attempted to dominate with weapons of war and destruction, leading the way In making peace on earth a global reality. When I think about the earth being filled with God's glory, I see people who no longer live outside the empathy of other humans, eliminating the dualistic need for enemies. Acknowledging that her unique story and his unique story and their unique stories and my unique story are all wrapped up together in a shared and common humanity that transcends race, and gender and sexual orientation and borders and stigmas when i envision that earth i no longer see a world that has fallen short of the glory of god but a world that lives and moves and has its existence within the glory of god friends this is what we're called into this is the gospel This is the good news that there's a space where whatever God wants to happen, happens. And it arrived with Jesus and we're invited to participate in it right now. I recently got to experience the glory of God in humanity. In December, I had surgery on my right ankle. I was unable to drive. Vanessa was unable to take me to work because we have two little kids and she had to get them ready to, for school and get them to school. And so unbeknownst to me, our friend Bianca set up a ride train. She sent out to people here in our community and many of you all filled it out. And before I knew it, every slot was accounted for. For three weeks, every morning at 6.45, someone came to our apartment, joyfully ready to take me to work. That was God's glory filling me with joy each morning as I got to ride to work with my friends. It was the self-giving love of others who set aside their own well-being, and let's be honest, they set aside their sleep (laughs) so that my family and I could be taken care of. It was a small yet significant part of my world being filled with the kavod of God. It was the seeds that had been buried, producing fruit for me and my family. It was God's kavod manifest itself in his creation as it was intended. And it was beautiful. Last thing. Can I have that picture one more time? Perhaps a good practice for us this week is to maybe take some time to look upon Jesus on the cross just to gaze upon that scene. And then maybe contemplate the ideas of glory that we've been sold by this world. And then see if we can find ways to join in the act of giving God glory in big ways and in small ways, participating in that self-giving cross-shaped love that extends its arms of compassion to everyone. And as we do that, Perhaps it will help us experience just who we are in light of the cross, who we are because the Son of Man was lifted up. God, thank you for climbing Calvary's Hill, for reaching out your arms of love and divine forgiveness and grace. May we be your instruments of peace and compassion in our oh-so-broken world that your kingdom soon would come. May yours be the glory. May yours be the kavod forever. Amen.